throughout human history, man's depravity, man's wickedness has been recognized. And throughout human history, there have been systems, philosophies, that try to describe why humanity has failed, to try to describe why humanity constantly turns to evil. And as these philosophies develop, they begin to try to offer out solutions. So before World War II, we entered what is called the modern era. The modern era was based on science and knowledge. And there was this idea that a humanity could achieve utopia through knowledge. If we just studied hard enough, if we just developed good enough philosophies, we could develop governments and human systems that would then produce utopia among humanity. That we would no longer need God as a moral reference. We could do it ourselves. And as this idea built up, World War II hit. World War II totally demolished this type of thinking. The absolute wickedness and evilness of man was realized. And that's when we entered the postmodern era. The postmodern era was defined by skepticism. We saw that institutions couldn't win the day, that science wasn't going to win the day, that philosophy couldn't win the day. There was a problem with evil, and we weren't quite sure what to do with that problem. But we knew one thing. Institutions were bad. And so people started throwing off the shackles of institutions. We can't let the institutions gain control because they will produce evil. So it no longer became institutions that were good, but institutions were evil. And they started to develop this idea that humans were actually naturally good. Humans were naturally good. It was the institutions. It was the systems that made us bad. So if we could just cast off the evil systems, we would develop utopia. And so we saw rebellion against systems. Overthrow the man. But that didn't solve the problem either. We're not quite in the postmodern world anymore. People don't really quite know what to call it. But they're, we've realized that there's a problem. The modern era didn't solve it. Postmodern era didn't solve it. But we've kind of still held on to some of those postmodern beliefs. That's the institution. But instead of anarchy, there are people now suggesting that what we need to do is just simply replace bad institutions with, guess what? Good institutions. And if we can just replace those bad institutions with good institutions, we'll usher in utopia. And so we see it right now in our own culture. We see people fighting the systems that say the systems are bad. We, re we need to tear them down and totally rebuild with new systems that are good. 
And I've got news for you. Those systems will ultimately fail as well. And the reason behind every system's failure and the reason behind every man's failure is our own depravity. You and me are selfish beings. You and me have failed. We have rebelled against God. And oftentimes, we put our own selfish desires above everything else. That is what is really failing humanity. There's no amount of systems that can fix us. There's no amount of systems that will fix our depravity. The only thing that can usher in utopia is to get rid of our depravity. That is what we'll talk about today. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 20. We're still walking through it. We've only got a couple more chapters left. In your bulletin, it says that we're going to go through 21.8. That's the end of the third vision. I wanted to get there, but I decided we probably shouldn't do it. That would be buying off too much for Communion Sunday. So we're just going to stick to chapter 20. As we walk through hopeful a study through Revelation, we're up to 20. And we called it hopeful because Revelation should be bringing in hope. It should give us this hope, just like communion, how it is remembering what God did, but also looking forward to what God will do. That's what Revelation is all about. So Christians should have hope. Out of everybody on earth, we should have hope. Number one is the, everyone else on earth is putting their hope in failed institutions. They think the institutions can usher in utopia. We know that's not true. But we also know what will. And what will is God one day. We're not sure when that day will come, but we know that God will one day make all things new. That's what 20 is going to be all about. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they had not received its, oh sorry, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the year, thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, 
and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which, was, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, let's dig in. So, then I saw. So, we've got uh, 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 the chronology throughout Revelation can kind of be difficult to follow. There's a lot of circular events happening, but here we're entering into something new that we haven't looked at before. So, We've got the first vision, which is the seven letters to the seven different churches. Then we, in chapter 4, we see the second vision begins. The second vision gives us the end of this era, the end of this age. It starts what we call the tribulation period. And during the tribulation period, there will be three sets of seven judgments. So there's going to be seven bowls, and in the last bowl, there will be seven... Sorry, let me back that up. I got it backwards seven seals. In the last seal, the seventh seal, there will be the seven trumpets. In the last set, or in the last trumpet, there will be seven bowls of judgment. The seven bowls of judgment, at the very end, the seventh bowl, that's going to be Armageddon. We're very familiar with that term. That is a great battle that's fought on the plains right outside of the city Megiddo. Megiddo is a city in Israel. So that's going to be Armageddon. At the end of Armageddon, there will be a whole new era. Chapters 17 through 19 reflect on that Armageddon time. So you see that there's kind of a circular chronology there, right? So we pick up with Armageddon all the way back in chapter 16, 17 through 19, circle back around and reflect on that. Here we're entering into a new era. That's the then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. So Armageddon is over. These great armies that that were going up against to declare war against God, Christ came down, and with the sword of his mouth, boom, over, instantaneously. And after that, this angel comes down. In his hand, he had the key to the bottomless pit. So the last time we saw these keys were all the way back in the the trumpets, the judgments from the trumpets. So if you remember all the different judgments, the first set of seven is it's lifting up man's dep- or the restrainer so that we can clearly see man's depravity. So man is clearly depraved, man is clearly wicked, and God is building a case. You could almost imagine it as a courtroom setting. God is building a case on why e- hell for eternity is deserved. So we see that man is clearly depraved. The next set of judgments, we see that God is, in fact, God. And he's going to come to this earth, or not come to this earth, but he's going to reveal himself in this earth in such a supernatural way that no one will be able to declare that that's just nature. That's just nature causing that earthquake. That's just nature turning the sun into blood. It's going to be so clear that God is the one who has authority. But then we see him give the keys 
to the uh, abyss or to the bottomless pit to uh, an angel, and an angel releases demons. Those demons come to this earth, and they torture people. And we're like, why on earth would God allow that? What, this is kind of crazy. And it's all to drive people to repentance. So that second vision, we see God driving people to repentance, as if to say, so those demons released on earth, they're going to torture people, as if to say, you think this is bad. Just wait for eternity. You think this is horrible, these demons torturing you? Just wait for eternity. So he gives them a taste of hell on earth to drive them to repentance. Some people repent. Some people choose to worship the demons over repentance. Could you imagine? Most of us think that we would be the ones to repent. There will be a multitude that will worship the very beings that are torturing them instead of repenting and worshiping God. So that's the last time we saw these keys. But we see them again. And not only is he carrying the key to the bottomless pit, and a great, but he's also carrying a great chain. And he seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan. So in chapter 19, we read that Jesus had a name that no one else knew. And we talked a little bit about the significance of names. So number one is, in antiquity, you, you were given a name that kind of represented your essence, kind of who you are. We don't quite get that these days. You know, I talked a little bit about how Henry got named Henry because we like the name Henry. It's a cool name, man. Uh, but, but that's not exactly how things were in antiquity. Names meant something. They described who you were. So the fact that no one could describe or name Jesus, knew his name in full, showed that no one knew his full essence, that he was still revealing himself to us. But then there was also another part of that, and that was to know someone's name or to give someone a name meant you had authority over them. And so that represented Jesus, that no one has authority over Jesus. Here we see a list of names for Satan. And it's showing, number one, that his true essence, his true being is known. That we know who Satan really is. And let's look at that, what that means. First is the dragon. The dragons in antiquity were thought of as terrible creatures. So that's the first thing that we get from Satan, is that he is a terrible creature. The next is that ancient serpent. Serpents in antiquity were thought of as being crafty. Now, crafty is not always bad. Uh, it just means that you're willing, you, you have the ability to outwit others. So when Jesus had his earthly ministry, and he had his disciples, and he was getting ready to send them out to go preach the gospel in multiple cities, he told them, be as crafty as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. So he's actually commanding them to be crafty, meaning he's, he's telling them, don't be an idiot. All right, so we can know that Satan's not an idiot. He's crafty. But that's not all he is. He is also the devil and Satan. The devil and Satan both kind of mean the same thing, and they both mean accuser and adversary. So we see this is Satan's main purpose, to be our accuser and our adversary. 
He knows he's going to lose the war. He knows how it's going to end. He's not an idiot. He's crafty. He knows he's going to, end, he's going to lose. Now his game plan isn't to defeat God. His game plan is to take as many of us down with him. So he wants to separate you from God. He wants to drive a wedge between you and God. And he does this multiple ways. We're going to see later on that he's a deceiver. So one of the main weapons that he uses is deceit. And he's really good at deceit. And, and one of those ways he's really good is he takes a bit of truth and he twists it just a little bit to make a very convincing lie. One of those lies that he's trying to convince you of is that you are unlovable. So what's the truth? The truth is you don't deserve God's love. That's the truth. You don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's love. None of us could earn God's love. None of us is really that great of a being. No human ever in existence is that great of a being where God is like, oh man, I can't just help myself. They're just so amazing. We don't deserve God's love. That's the truth. Where he has twisted it to a lie is that because you don't deserve God's love, God doesn't love you. That's a lie. God is love. And although you don't deserve it, by his very being, God is compelled to love you. No matter how jacked up you are, no matter how many sins you have committed, no matter how much you've rebelled and shaken your fist against God, he still loves you. Don't buy in to the deception that God doesn't love you. It's a lie, and it's a lie from your accuser. The accuser, that is another way that he tries to drive a wedge, is he wants to pile on shame. He wants you to think that there's no possible way God would ever love you. You're a fool. You're a sinner. So he takes that truth that you're a sinner, and he piles on the shame. There's no shame in Christ. Don't let Satan deceive you. So, we see that he we see his true essence. We see who Satan truly is. Another part of this is that it shows that Christ has authority over Satan. He knows his name. He's given him his name. He has authority over him. that does bring us to kind of a question that multiple, multiple people ask in chapter 20. And that question is, if he is our accuser, if he is our adversary, if he is already lost and he's just trying to drag as many people down as he possibly can, why does God, number one, why did God even create him? Number two, why did God allow him to fall? And number three, why does God still allow Satan to operate. And I will be very blunt in my answer. I don't know. There are a lot of theologians that will give you a lot of different answers. 
I don't exactly know. I do know two things about that question. One is, we don't always quite understand what God is doing. He is an infinite God, and we are finite. We have small brains, some of us smaller than others. So we can't, even if he described why he created and why he allows it at all, we can't quite understand. It reminds me a lot of uh, when we first got into foster care, we got this girl, just an amazing girl. We got her at six days old, and she, uh, her mom had been doing meth. So we got her, and she was coming off of meth. Now, she was, you know, the meth, the, the, her body was expelling the toxins through every pore of her body, which made her reek. She stank really bad. But beyond that stink, she was in constant pain. So we got this six-year-old who was in constant pain, and that constant pain made her cry. And the only thing that would stop her from crying is if I took her outside, I held her tight, and we were outside. Even in the midst of this kind of wind, she would prefer to be outside than inside. And so I would take her, I would hold her tight, I would take her outside, and sometimes it would feel like my arms were going to fall off, but I still held her because I knew that was the only thing that would bring her comfort. Now, could you imagine if I sat her down on the couch and I said, you know, here's the problem that you have right now. You're six days old and you are addicted to math. And your body is trying to get rid of that meth. And because your body is trying to get rid of that meth, but your body's also addicted to that meth, it's putting you in excruciating pain. So now that you understand all that's going on with your body, why don't you just stop crying? That probably wouldn't have gone over well. I would not have been a great foster dad at that moment. Instead of understanding, instead of being comforted, instead of bringing relief, she would have just screamed through the entire thing. So when I think about that question, why does God allow these things to happen? Why did God allow Satan to do what he's doing? I can say, I don't exactly know. But I don't want my lack of knowledge and even my lack of ability to comprehend why get in the way of the comfort that God has given me. God hasn't exactly explained himself, nor does God need to explain himself. But he has offered comfort. Don't let the, the lack of knowledge distract you from the comfort that he is offering. There's one other side to this that I think is important, and that is oftentimes we use questions as a way to try to usurp authority. Have you ever noticed that with some of your kids? You know, you're making some dinner, and they come in, and they ask you what's for dinner, and then you tell them, and they start asking a whole series of questions, but it's not really about you making dinner. Right now, it's about you answering to your kid. And it's their way of trying to establish, hey, look, I have authority over you. That's what we oftentimes try to do to God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't question. We should be like the Bereans that we found in Acts. You know, when Paul comes and he preaches the gospel, what do they do? They search in Scripture to see if it was true. 
Now, I think we need to be like that. We need to be searching for truth in Scripture. But what, what the difference here is, instead of me posing questions to God to try to usurp authority and establish my authority like God owes me an answer, like, hey God, why did you do this? Why did you create Satan? You owe me an answer. And we see that throughout Job, right? And what does God do at the end? He lays the smack down. He says, where were you, Job, when I created the Leviathan? When I played with it like a little pet? Where were you when I created the earth? When I established it? And the answer Job gives is, I'm not worthy. So often we yell at God these questions as a way to try to usurp authority and say, God, you owe me. So we need to study Scripture, but the reason why we study Scripture isn't to get God to answer us, it's to understand what He has revealed. So we need to be in Scripture, we need to be studying, and that's what I have to say about Satan's names and his and Christ's authority over him. So, he's given him his names, and he bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it. So we see that he does four things to him. He binds him, he throws him into a pit, he shuts it, and he seals it. This shows the significance of God's authority over Satan, and the security that he has over him. He's not going to let him out until the time is right. So he might not deceive the nations any longer. So, first question is, this is after Armageddon, who are the nations? Well, if we remember, the, uh, there were armies that came up to fight against Christ. Christ absolutely annihilated those armies in a second, just by his mouth. So, some people would think that all of the world was gone. I think it's important that we highlight, it wasn't all of the world, it was simply armies. So, whoever is left, is still a part of the nations. So he binds Satan up so that Satan can can no longer deceive these nations. There's quite a few things going on here. Number one, I think it's important for us to highlight that these people have been deceived. There's a lot of argument about truth right now. There's some people that say your truth, my truth, and we know that's that's, that's false. There's only one truth. There's your perspective on the truth. There's my perspective on the truth. But by definition, there can't be multiple truths. There can only be one truth. Now, the temptation that, as Christians, who hopefully are rooted in the truth, the temptation that we have is to get mad and yell at people that don't believe in truth. And there's a lot of wackadoo ideas out there right now, aren't there? There's some crazy ideas floating around. And sometimes what we do is we see these wackadoo ideas and we're like, you idiot! How can you not see that this is not the truth, plain and simple? And how many arguments do we win with that language? How many people who have been deceived change their mind because I call them a wackadoo idiot. I can tell you, zero. There have been zero people that I have experienced while I was discussing with them that changed their minds if I used the phrasing, if I yelled at them, if I said, you wackadoo idiot, you don't even have a clue when it comes to reality. It's important for us to recognize that there is deception, that people have been deceived, But our job isn't to yell at them and get mad at them because they have been deceived. Our job is to speak the truth with love. 
And sometimes it's, a, it's just a matter of measuring out where they are. So every single person is different. Every person is on a different path. Everybody is walking something differently. And so what I have to do when I engage others is I ask, are they, are they even ready to hear the truth? I have a, good, I have a cousin who he has been utterly deceived in his life. My heart breaks for him. I have talked with him on several occasions, and he doesn't want to hear truth at all. He simply says, whatever. Well, that's what you believe. I don't believe that. So I can't even engage in a conversation about truth with him. So what is my assignment when it comes to my cousin? I think my assignment is to love him really well. I don't even, I don't even talk to him about the issues anymore. So... I would say that I keep our life looking good, not in a legalistic way, but I, I am joyful around him. On things that I can find to celebrate in him, I celebrate. But I don't throw my pearls before swine, meaning I don't take truth and give it to him just for him to roll around in the mud with it. So my prayer is that one day he will ask the question, because he's a pretty lonely, angry guy, one day he will ask the question, why am I so lonely and angry? But I see Aaron and Jen with joy in their life. And one day he'll ask me, Aaron, why do you have joy in your life? And at that moment I can share the gospel with him. Now there are other people that although he wasn't ready to hear the truth, still isn't, there are other people that are ready to hear the truth. So our job with every individual is to ask the question, are they ready to hear the truth or do they just need me to love them? Or are they ready to hear the truth and be loved at the same time? And if they're Christian, I think another question should be asked is, are they ready to listen to the truth from the gospel? And if they're not ready to listen to the truth from Scripture, then Scripture is very clear on have nothing more to do with them. Because they are bending and twisting Scripture. So these people are deceived. But they, he's going to put Satan in a pit so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released. So uh, the thousand years... We won't get into all the ideas behind the 1,000 years, but I'll just say that I think these are literal years. Jesus is going to come. He is going to reign for 1,000 years. Satan will be uh, chained up for those 1,000 years, and then he will be released, which asks, creates another question. Why? And I go back to Christ is going to reign. He is going to usher in the perfect system. So because we have moral failures, because we are uh, uh, humans that fail, we will never create a perfect system. Even if we could create a perfect system, there would be imperfect people operating the, imp the, or the perfect system, making the perfect system imperfect. Do you get what I, see what I'm getting at there? there? We can never usher that in. However, Christ can usher in the perfect system, and for a thousand years, these nations will live in a perfect system. 
but they will still live in rebellion. And what I mean by that is there will be, though they will live in this perfect system, they will still look towards something else. They will still be waiting for something else. And all they need is a ringleader to lead them in this rebellion. So if we go back to this idea of this courtroom scene, God is giving one last argument for eternal hell. And that argument is, even in the perfect system, you still rebelled. Even in the perfect system, you still rose your fist in rebellion against me once you had a leader. And for that reason, you deserve eternal separation. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So during this thousand-year reign that Christ will have, the martyrs during the great tribulation period will come back to life and they will reign with Christ. That's what he's getting at there, or that's what he sees there. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So, the rest of the dead, that includes all unbelievers and the Old Testament saints. So the church, during this age, we will be raptured out before the, before the uh, tribulation comes, we'll be reigning with God from heaven, and then during this thousand year reign, the martyrs for, from the tribulation will come back to life, they will reign with them, but all the Old Testament saints and the unbelievers will still be dead. They won't come back to life until the second resurrection. We'll get into that in a second. So this is the first resurrection. Uh, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So he's just giving this blessing for those who are martyred and will come back to reign. Over such, the second death, the second death is going to be God's judgment on all uh, unbelievers have no power but they will be priests. A priest is an intermediary. So we see that these people, these martyrs that will come back to life during this thousand-year reign, they will be intermediaries for Christ. They will be reigning and ruling with him, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released. All right, so this is going to be, this next section from 7 all the way through 10 is going to highlight a few things about Satan. One, it's going to have Satan's release, then Satan's deception, third, Satan's war, fourth, Satan's loss, and fifth is Satan's destruction. So when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations. So the nations are still living in rebellion. All they need is that ringleader. So Satan comes back and he's going to be the ringleader. And it's like instantaneously, the second Satan is back, they are living in rebellion against God. They had the perfect system. And even in the perfect system, they were just waiting. Satan's back. Their waiting is over. They come to rebellion. So, to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Every time we come to this statement, the four corners of the earth, I just have to reiterate that this is an idiom for all of the earth. He's not saying that the earth is flat. It's a simple idiom it is all of the earth, all right? Gog and Magog. This is a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel has this vision of this great king, 
Gog and the, the land that he lives in, Magog. So he's got Gog and Magog, these two, re, they form a rebellion. God allows this rebellion. So he gathers all the nations, they come up against Jerusalem, God allows it, and then he totally and utterly wipes them out. And he does this, number one, to show that these people are absolutely rebellious against him, and number two, to justify his judgment. So he shows that his judgment is true, his judgment is just. Although they were living in a perfect system, they still came to rebellion, and God's judgment upon them is just and true. So he gathers them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. That's an idiom just for an uncountable number. Their numbers are so great, it's uncountable. The first war, Armageddon, that was fought in the plains of Megiddo, that was a huge army, but it was still countable. This army is all the people that are in rebellion. There is no woman or child who is not in rebellion that is not a part of this army. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So the beloved city here is Jerusalem. So we see that Armageddon and this battle are not the same. Some people think it is. This is not the same battle. One is fought in Megiddo. This one is fought around Jerusalem. And in an instant, this is over. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So, the first army is devastated by the word of Christ. This army is devastated by fire coming from heaven. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we see how quickly the, the earth's people, humanity, rebel against God, and how quickly they are absolutely annihilated here. Then I saw a great white horse. So it's the same vision, but now we're on to a new scene. The battle is over. Notice there's not a lot of description about the battle. Because it's not a real battle. It's a simple victory for Christ. Then I saw a great white throne. Uh, great is remarkable. It means that there, is none like, there are none like it. And white is, signifies purity, and the throne is a chair of authority. So all this signifies that the one who is seated on it, Christ, has authority unlike any other. It is pure. He doesn't receive it from anyone else. You know, I go back to when Jesus was in front of Pontius Pilate on trial, and Jesus tells him, the only authority you have is from above. Meaning, you don't actually have the authority. Someone handed you the authority. Here, he said, here we see that Jesus has all authority. Nobody handed it over to him. He just is where authority even comes from. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. This simply means that they dissolved. That, that the, the earth and the sky couldn't handle the glory of God. He has made it dissolve. Now part of this is that God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth in a rebuilding process. Because when Adam sinned, sin came into the world and has corrupted all of the world. 
disease, and death. They weren't initially part of God's design. Disease and death were a result of the fall, and when when Adam fell, sin entered the world, corruption entered the world, disease and death entered the world. So God is going to dissolve the world and rebuild a new perfect world where there is no disease nor death. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. So this is all believers throughout time now will stand before this great white throne and be judged. Now, we looked last week at this term salvation, and in that particular sense, salvation meant to be delivered from judgment. So some people look at this and they're like, wait, wait, they're going to be judged? Well, I would say this is a judge unto reward. So God is looking at the things that you have done in this life, and he will judge on how to reward you based on what you have done. So I can think of it kind of like the Olympics, you know? Nobody's going to get punished if they absolutely messed up their Olympic routine. But they will be rewarded if they, if they uh, are flawless, right? So that's the way I look at this. Now, this might beg the question, is heaven legalistic? Are people like going to walk around like, hey, did you see how many gold medals I got? Well, because of my work on earth, how much better am I than you? Is there a hierarchy in heaven? And I don't think that is what's going to happen at all. In fact, I go back to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, we see 24 elders sitting around worshiping God, and they all have crowns. That term for crown is Stephanos, meaning that these crowns were earned. So we are all on this earth earning crowns based upon our work. But when we get to heaven and we get before the great white throne and we see God in all of his glory, what are we going to do with those crowns? What are we going to do with all the stuff we've earned? The righteousness that we've earned? We're just going to throw it at his feet just like those kings cast their crowns upon his feet because his glory is more than anything I could have ever earned. So what's interesting about this is that we'll be judged and we'll be giving a reward based on our work. And what are we going to do with all that we've given? We're just going to give it right back to God and say, God, you deserve it all. It is only because of you and how you have transformed my heart that I was even able to do it. So there is no hierarchy in God. Well, we could say there is a hierarchy in heaven, and it goes God and the rest. But we're not going to walk around like sporting our crown saying, I'm better than you will cast those crowns at the feet of the one who, was, who had given us the ability to earn them anyways. But next, after the, the believers are judged, we see that non-believers are judged. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. But all three of those were, were symbolic for where the wicked would be. So when the wicked die, they're either in, in the sea or death and Hades. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So what's interesting is we will be judged based on what we we have done, and our judgment will produce a reward. That reward we will just cast at the feet of Jesus anyways. The dead will also, or the wicked will also, the non-believers will also be judged based upon their work. And they will be found wanting. 
Because not a single person can earn salvation. There's no amount of good works that you can do to earn your righteousness. Isaiah 64 says that our good works are like dirty rags. Even your best works pale in comparison. They're just like dirty rags, used rags compared to God. So every single one of us has sinned against God. Every single one of us has rebelled. Every single one of us has shaken our fist in rebellion against God. And because of that, every single one of us deserves death. And there's no amount of work that you can do to earn righteousness back. There's no amount of work that you can do to earn heaven. There's no amount of work that you can do that can appease the judgment and wrath that is coming upon humanity. And so these people will be judged. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So even death itself, which was not a part of God's original design, that came in with Adam's sin, that corrupted humanity, even that will end. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the first death, we will all experience, that is the physical separation from your soul and your body. You will die. You will be separated from your body. The second death is a spiritual separation between you and God. And you will be cast for eternity into hell. Because you could not earn your righteousness. And because God is a holy and just God, Anyone who is not holy and righteous will be cast away from him for eternity. The only way to avoid this eternal punishment is by putting your faith and trust in Christ. Because God loved you with such a great love, he came to this earth and he took your punishment for your rebellion and your sin. The adversary wants to drive a wedge. First of all, he wants you to believe that it's the system's fault. If you can just get the right system in place, then man will be great. Then we can usher in a utopia, and there will never be any pain or hurt again. That's a lie. Because... We are imperfect people because we are depraved people. Even the greatest of systems will fail us because we will fail it. And then the second lie that he wants us to believe is that we could earn our salvation. If only we work hard enough, then God will be pleased. God loves you with a great love that you don't have to earn. And the third lie, if you haven't fallen in for those, is that you're unlovable. God loves you with such a great love that He came and He took your punishment for your rebellion as you were rebelling against Him. And all you have to do for eternal life, to avoid eternal punishment and receive eternal life, 
is put your faith and trust in Christ and his work on the cross. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have loved us in such a way that you came and you paid the price. And then you did more than that. You rose from the dead. And then you did more than that. You recorded it for us so that we could walk by faith, so that we can trust that there is no system good enough that will create a utopia on earth. And that we could understand that we can't earn your love, but you have given it to us anyways. And we can understand that although we don't deserve your love, you love us. You love us in such a way that you paid the price for us. And we pray that you would help us to grow in that gospel, to grow in your grace. ask the question, what am I missing? That we would share the gospel, have the opportunity to share the gospel with those who are still heading for eternal separation. In your name we pray. Amen.